It's like an interesting time for our industry. You don't necessarily have to be able to code something front to back, but having some knowledge of it is really helpful. And now that it's being built into tools, I think we're going to see that accelerate a lot for designers. Welcome to Lewagon Live. Today, we're listening to Zach Grosser. Zach is a freelance designer based in Amsterdam, and we're super, super excited to welcome him to London for this rare Q&A about product design. Previously, he's worked at Apple, Square, and Figma, which is what we teach from the Lewagon Bootcamp, so he's a font of knowledge about building awesome products. He's also studied glass blowing and yoga, as well as developing a resource called Presentation.Design, as well as co-hosting a podcast called Charged. So keep listening, and you'll hear all his secrets. So, um... Right now, uh, I'm a freelancer in the Netherlands. Um, originally, I'm from the United States. Uh, I'm from Western New York, and I started my career as a tour guide at a glass museum. So a non-traditional journey. And um, at the glass museum, the like rock stars are the glass blowers. They do like a hot glass show. So I was like, oh my god, I want to be that. I was like 15, so I was like, I really want to do that. So I went to university for glass blowing originally. And um, when I was looking at programs, I wanted to do something that was uh, maybe a little broader so that I could like try lots of different mediums. So I did glass blowing, and then I switched to sculpture, and then I took a design class and a sound class, and then I, I spent two years almost doing uh, video art. So when I graduated from university, I was like really focused on doing video and tried to find a job doing video production. Um, I graduated at a time in the United States when the, sort of the economy was slumped and there weren't a lot of jobs. Unemployment rate was pretty high. Um, and I just moved to California. Uh, I had a really great opportunity to like crash on someone's couch while I job searched. Um, so I applied to 950 jobs over three months and I got three interviews. And one of them was at the Apple store. And I was like, I like Apple products. And like, this is a cool way to like have employment while I continue like trying to get into my career. So I started sort of my career post-university working at the Apple store teaching classes. They used to run this program where you could sign up and, uh, and take classes on Apple software. So I was teaching Keynote and the rest of the iWork suite, as well as the pro apps. And um, I had this amazing senior manager that left to go work at Square. And so like two months later, he sent me a, a message and was like, I want you to come work for me. Um, you're going to love it here. It's like a startup. It's small. It was like 400 people at the time. And for those that don't know, Square is like a financial technology company uh, based in San Francisco. They have an office here in London uh, also. Um, but when I started, it was 400 people. And now they're over 3,000. And it's a public company. So it's sort of a big change since then. But I started working at Square, um, working in the, the cafeteria. So there's like a, there's like they serve food to employees, you know, very like typical San Francisco tech company. And um, I was swiping credit cards when people would walk up to like buy their lunch. And I was fixing the kegerator. And the closest I had access to the design team was when someone was like leaving the team or joining the team, they would like have champagne poured. So I would like pour champagne and then leave. So that's like the access I had to the design team. Um, but a role opened up to do presentation design. And I was like, well, I, I took that one design class in college. So like I can I kind of know the basics. And um, I had taught keynote at Apple. So I was like, I think I could do this job. Um, and you know, the cliche like networking is how you get a job. It, it really is helpful to know people. It's how I moved from Apple to Square. 
and I had this, you know, access to all of the employees paying for lunch. So I was like between them and lunch. And so I got to know a lot of them, including the people that were all hiring for this role. And so they took sort of a leap and let me apply for this job internally. And that was how I moved into like my first job of my career. Um, and I stayed at Square for five years. And by the time I left, I was running the communications design team, um, which is a crazy amount of, of change in five years. Um, and then at the end of 2017, I moved to Amsterdam. I was sort of ready to leave the Bay Area to, you know, a lot of people see Amsterdam as a pretty expensive city to live, but to compare to San Francisco, it's cheaper. So I moved to Amsterdam and then started working for Figma. And my role at Figma was not a design role. It was my first sort of like leaving my career to sort of stepping aside in my career a little bit to try something new. And I was going to build an education program for people that wanted to get into design. So I was really passionate about like helping people get into the industry and uh, much like this program at Lowagon. So I started working at Figma to build out education programs and enable people to learn design. And then I was also doing community advocacy in Europe. And then in February, I left to go back to designing full time and I run a little freelance company now. Wow. So, a little wow. short version, yeah. No, what a journey. Yes. Yeah. Super interesting. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned working for both um, Square and Figma. So, tell us maybe about the difference in the design process for working for a small company versus a big company. Yeah, so Figma, when I joined, was 32 people. When I left, it was just under 100. And Square, when I joined, was 400 people. And when I left, it was over 3,000. So, very different scale companies. Um, I think, like, on a really basic level, the the major difference is when you're at a smaller company, you're more of a generalist. You sort of get to touch a lot of different things, and there's never enough people for all the work that needs to get done. And so you can identify a lot of responsibilities and start taking them in. And then, you know, maybe you're doing product design and brand design if you're, you know, a team of four designers in a 30-person company, something like that. So you get to do a lot of more generalizing. When a company grows to the size that Square was when I was there, um, you can really specialize on things because you, know, you get to a place where there's dozens and dozens of designers spread out across organizations. And so you have these opportunities to really specialize and get into a more niche type of work. Um, and I think both have their benefits. And some people can make that transition and some people just prefer one over the other. So I don't think that there's a right or wrong or one to like set your sights on to like try to get to. Um, some people like generalizing and once a company hits 100 people, they leave to go work at another small company and that's okay. But some people really like the scale and being able to specialize in something. Like myself, I really got into presentation design, which is a pretty niche type of design, um, but I really enjoy that and it's fun to be able to focus on it when a company gets to scale like that. Great, thank you so much. Um, also, do you have any tips for maybe for um, people having just started, maybe our alumni on, on design? Yeah, um, I'm gonna interpret started as like trying to get a job. Is that maybe? Yes. So when you're trying to get a job, I think the skills that you use to get a job are not the skills that you use during your job. You know, it's a lot of networking and mingling and meeting people and connecting and getting yourself out there in ways that are different from like your day to day, like coding or designing, right? Like your portfolio obviously is really helpful, 
but interviewing is a skill in itself. Um, writing a resume is a skill in itself. Like doing those things that maybe you don't have to do that often if you are a person that stays in a job for a long time. Um, you know, you get rusty and it's sometimes hard to move between those roles. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of it is, um, I don't like the term soft skills, but a lot of people call them like soft skills of like people skills is really what they are. And I think like that's really important and a fundamental thing uh, in our industry. And so that's like a lot of the work that I think goes into getting that first job in your career. Um, and a lot of it, uh, I think you can do it going to meetups, um, trying to introduce yourself to people at the companies that you want to work at. That's another thing is like, maybe you really want to be a product designer, but what you can do is take a, a role that's maybe a little more junior than that, like I did going into Square, to get into a company that you really want to work for. So I always recommend like focusing on like the mission of a company and having it align with how you feel about the work that you want to be doing rather than a specific role. Because a lot of companies, especially as they're growing, you know, a lot of small stage startups are looking for people that can grow with the company because they're looking to grow really fast. Um, uh, you're going to change your role very quickly and a lot of times. So in the five years I was at Square, I was in three different teams. I had several different roles. It's going to happen as the companies grow and as you grow as a designer or developer, whatever you end up doing. Um, so maybe being willing to take a different role than the one that your like dream of your career is to get into the company that you really want to work for. Great. Thank you. Noted. So tell me a bit, a little bit. Um, so you're an entrepreneur. You've got your own business. Yes, that's um, new. Yeah, tell me, what is it? What does it aim to do? Mm -hmm. So my business is Zoct Studios. It's a little like pun uh, with Dutch. Uh, I, I'm still learning Dutch, but it, it's like a play on my name and a Dutch word. Um, right now it's just me, so I run the company by myself. And um, uh, I do freelance presentation design, and I focus mostly on company storytelling and um, fundraising. So a lot of startups are using pitch decks to raise funding from VC firms or other types of investors. And a lot of that is storytelling and it's visual design and it's time-based media and it's a lot of different elements that go together. And so I focus on helping those companies like confidently like tell their own story Amazing. Um, so tell me about some, maybe some clients you've worked with um, and how have you helped them? Yeah, so I've worked with a, a lot of companies, Square obviously, but uh, a lot of startups that went from seed funding and are now public. I've worked with large companies like SpaceX and I work with a lot of VC firms in San Francisco that are trying to grow companies themselves too. Amazing, thanks. Um, so now a few more questions on just design in general. Um, can you just give us maybe some tips for some simple and effective design we can all take away? Um, yeah, I think uh, like I always uh, harp on like the, the fundamentals of like consistency and hierarchy. I think a lot of the fundamentals of design are the things that um, can get away from people a lot of the times if they're trying to make something maybe for dribble or to like put in their portfolio before they've got uh, you know their first job in their career. Um, I think one of the other things that I encourage is like really looking to see how intuitive something is. I don't think you necessarily have to follow every pattern that already exists. There's lots of like you can sort of take risks and do something that 
maybe isn't consistent with, you know, if maybe you're designing for an app on a phone, maybe it's not consistent with the Apple guidelines or the uh, material design guidelines. Maybe it's a little outside the box, as long as it's maybe accessible and intuitive to your customers, um, it, it might be worth taking those risks. Um, having said that, it is always important to make sure it's accessible. And I think if you have to explain uh, how your app works, maybe over a couple sentences, that it, maybe you've taken that like a little too far. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, so also, when, when do you think is a good time to maybe reinvent the wheel? And when would you just stick to the old tried and tested concepts? Yeah, um, I always like to like reference Path. Does anyone remember Path, the app? It was like a social network where you could only friend a certain amount of people, and it was intended for like you to share updates with like your family and your closest friends. So you'd post like everything. That was like back when people were posting their breakfasts on Instagram. But it was like that plus your location plus what your plans were. But it was it was closed network, and they did some really exciting like UI UX stuff that no one had really seen before. They were the first app I had seen like the floating action button that's really common on Android now. Um, they had it, and when you tapped it, it like spun out this animation with all the menu items. Um, and it was just something no one had seen before, but it still functioned similar enough to like hamburger menu, right? You tap a button, and there's some sort of animation, and there are your options, which even then wasn't super common. I think it took. Facebook to adopt the hamburger menu for that to be really popular. Um, but it's a similar enough you know, interaction of like tapping on something and here's more options. But they did it in a playful way that was interesting and um, like delightful. Um, I think like if you can put a little bit of delight in your interactions or in your uh, content, I think it goes a long way. Yeah, I like that. So what, what do you think are the best resources for people to use on the web or just in general resources to find? For That's a great question. I think that especially for design, like we're always at maybe a little bit of a loss for a really solid resource. Um, I think like something becomes a really good resource for a period of time and then it sort of like doesn't anymore. Um, I have like a love-hate relationship with designer news. I think like, oh, sometimes there's stuff that I find there that I wouldn't find other places necessarily. But you know, scrolling through the comments on there can be like scrolling through YouTube comments. Sometimes you're like, I just wish I hadn't. So um, I, you know, I think it's hard. I think uh, using, I don't necessarily want to encourage like bad social media habits, like getting on all the platforms. But um, I use Twitter a lot to try and find out stuff and, and follow people that share resources and point toward other useful things. Um, I think that's one of the most successful ways that I find resources online. Um, and then if you can find um, private communities, I think that we're really going to see a lot more of them over the next year of private communities happening instead of these large social networks like Twitter and Facebook. I think a lot of like Slack and Discord and Telegram groups are really where everyone's going to be moving for their information, for sharing, um, if they haven't already. And so finding communities of designers and developers sharing really exciting things um, can be helpful. Uh, I joined the, I, I took a coding class last year uh, with, through Super High. 
and they've got like a Slack group and they share resources there. So um, trying to get into those groups or even you as like a cohort, like creating a chat group together to share resources for the next 10 years of your career um, can be really helpful. And through that, you can also do networking for jobs and stuff like that. Uh, the question was what element or particular slide do startups miss when they're pitching? I think it's less about the particular slide, but more about how they arrange them. Um, I think like with presentations, just like with anything else, you need really good storytelling. I think every form of design is storytelling. You know, if you're designing a billboard, obviously you're telling a story. If you're taking a photo, you're telling a story. If you're doing a user flow in an app, there's a story there. Um, so it's the same thing with slides, but especially because people are telling the story of their company and why you should give them $12 million. Um, so I think it's really important to like focus on that before you even start moving words around in PowerPoint. Um, so that's, I think that's usually the thing people miss is like starting with the like, what's, what's the point? And that elevator pitch, I think. If you could turn your elevator pitch for your startup into a deck, that's really the magic, I think. Convincing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the question was about at like user testing and how to like get them to do it without pushing them? That's a really good question. Um, I think it, it's a combination of like picking a prototyping tool that's going to let you put some guardrails up, but that don't feel too obvious. Um, I don't, there are a lot of prototyping tools. I think maybe more than any other type of design tool right now. I feel like there's hundreds of prototyping tools. And I think the best one is the one that you feel comfortable with in all honesty. Like, pick one that you have learned how to use and just stick with it or try other ones and get comfortable with them. But I wouldn't say that there's like the best one that exists right now. Um, but when you're doing it, a lot of times uh, when user testing happens in prototyping tools, there's sort of these highlight areas where someone like taps in an area that you haven't linked to anything. And the interface sort of flashes and like, that doesn't do anything. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I understand, like, I've done that and I've built prototypes like that, but I don't know that's the best experience when you're doing user testing. If you sort of like, sort of like breaking the fourth wall in like media, um, it, you're showing your, whoever you're doing user testing with that it's not real. And I think if you can make your prototyping, you know, just link every part of the page to something, um, even if it's like another. If maybe it goes back to the home screen even, but just something so that they get a feel for what it would really be like. Um, and honestly, like in my experience, it only takes like an extra 15, 20 minutes sometimes to be like, okay, I just need to like make like a wireframe app screen for the thing that this is going to become. Even if it's like, I'm not testing the settings at all, someone still might hit that settings button and expect something to happen. So just having like something there, I think goes a long way. Like, so if a client asks you to like step really far outside of user guidelines, yeah, I've definitely been asked that before. A, a lot of times they'll even ask you just to step out of um, maybe what to you seems like a really obvious design decision. Like, hey, can we put four paragraphs in that notification? And you're like, no. So um, yeah, that happens a lot. And you just have to be really confident with, hey, I know what's best to do in this instance. And just being confident in your explanation of that of like, we could do that, but I'm going to explain to you why that's not the best idea. You're like, this, no one's going to read this. Here, we'll put one together in a prototype just for you, the client, to see what that's like. 
um, hopefully you can build that relationship with your clients where they trust you as the expert. But that's always going to happen. You're always going to have the CEO come into the room and be like, can that be yellow? And you're like, no, it's on white. It's not legible. But So you have to, um, I think, calmly explain your rationale for your design thinking and um, hopefully get through personal preferences that way. Because I think that's a lot of the times where you run into that is where someone has a personal preference about the future of my company. Um, I'm not sure. I think it could be really interesting. I, I know... I know some other designers that do presentation design, and I think it's also something that uh, a designer could move into if they're comfortable with visual design or even product design. Um, but I don't know. I think uh, it's difficult to um, foresee if you know uh, I'll be able to find other people that have the same sort of like um, I don't want to say personal preferences because like you know just sort of like thought process to design. I think. Um, there are things that are fundamental that everyone sort of can agree on for the most part or that you can get a place to of like, you know, um, minimum font size for all of the things we work on. I think that can be something that's really easily agreed upon, but it's finding partners that you share long-term vision with, I think can be a little challenging when you're building your initial team for a company. And so I'm sure I'll get there eventually, but it's just one of those things that I'm, you know, honestly like afraid of and, uh, I've seen a lot of companies start at early stage with just you know a three or four person team, and if there's a lot of personalities there that don't necessarily align, that can be a challenge. And it can slow the growth of the company down, or even um, you know disappoint your clients. So it's, it's something to watch out for. And so yeah, it'll happen eventually. But uh, there's a lot of things to think about first about the future of pitch decks. I think like fundamentally like there will always be some form of the deck even for pitching or otherwise because um, when you think of non-designers that sit down at their computer, the only design tool they have access to is presentation software, right? Like that's what comes with your computer regardless of what platform there's a presentation software and it's really like the only place they have to like move squares and triangles around on the page. Um, I think that's changing, but like that's that's like the fundamental design software that non-designers use. So I think it'll exist in some form or the other because they want to express themselves just as much as designers do. Um, I've been talking to a lot of VC firms about the pitch deck because obviously it's in my best interest to like deliver what they want to be seeing from companies. Um, and there's a couple firms that do want to change what that looks like of like, hey, we take your pitch deck and we really put it in a spreadsheet with these 11 things that we're looking for, like 11 bits of information, and that's all we want in the pitch deck. And so um, I think there's an area that I'm exploring of like, maybe it's a one pager, maybe it's a website that's standard. I think that 90% of the pitch deck is similar from company to company. It's that extra 10% that's really unique because every company and every product is is hopefully unique. Um, that that part, it's hard to figure out like what that could look like. And I think it depends. Maybe it's a prototype link and a one pager. Uh, you know, it, it could change in five years or 10 years. I'm not sure. But yeah, there will always be decks in some form just because it's a design tool everybody has. So I think every VC firm I've talked to is keen to see something change um, because they have those spreadsheets with like 11 line items that they're looking for. Um, 
sometimes they get a pitch deck that might be really good, but is missing one of those things. And so I'm starting to see VC firms on their website have, please include in your pitch decks, these 11 items. So it's definitely like on top of mind for a lot of them because they want to see these things. I think the flip side, though, is a lot of the benefit of the pitch process is most most of the time it happens in person. And so there's always that Q&A section for them to get clarification where it doesn't exist in the deck. But that could change. I think as we're seeing, um, you know, there are startups everywhere in the world trying to raise funding from every VC firm potentially. And so there might be more like uh, like asynchronous pitching happening where it might be like a video or a deck. And so, I, yeah, I think that there's an element there of like trying to standardize for those use cases. My number one recommended book for any type of designer, including app designers, is Thinking with Type by Ellen Lipton. It's just like very like fundamental design basics. It does, I don't even know if there are app screens in the book, but those like typography fundamentals I think are really helpful for everybody and they apply to other things. Like type can easily be looked at like stroke weights and illustration styles and colors and grid systems. You can really apply type thinking to all of them. I think at the base level, that's the story of hierarchy and using hierarchy to draw people's attention. Um, you know, if you hit an app page or a web page, there is the path that someone's eye follows. And you can use hierarchy across type or anything else on the screen or on the print to get people to look at what you want them to. And so just like wrapping your head around like that level of fundamental, I think it's really helpful. And it's not it's not like um, she, you know, she wrote this book as like a college professor at the time. And so uh, I think like it's pretty accessible and it's not too long and it's got a lot of great examples in it. So, so the question was like, is simplicity here to stay sort of on web apps? Um, I think yes and no. I think um, visual storytelling on the web, we've seen change a lot. Um, and most recently it's like we're moving back to like illustrations to tell stories and so you know you can tell a lot with um, any form of imagery. I think the benefit of the simplicity, if it's intended or not, hopefully it's intended, is like increasing accessibility and hopefully decreasing the amount of data used to load your page. Um, like web pages in size have exploded over the past 10 years. It used to be like really low amounts of data to load a page and now it's like huge, it's like downloading an app to load a web page. And as more people across the world are coming online with maybe limited data connections, I think that like element of simplicity, if it's done where the web pages are a little bit lighter to load, um, I think is really beneficial. So uh, that's a design affordance or like constraint that I think is something worth thinking about. Is like how does this experience work for someone without, you know, with maybe like a data cap that's pretty low or um, uh, web speeds that are low. So I'm a co-host on Charged Podcast. Um, we just had our 100th episode. So um, we talk about tech. Um, there's uh, three of us that are hosts. And uh, I'm a designer. My co-host, Frederica, is a designer and illustrator. And then Owen is a copywriter and journalist. And um, so we come to tech sort of uh, from a different perspective than a lot of tech reporting, where it's, it's usually like journalists and engineering. Um, but we, we really want to focus on the ethics of tech and making sure that 
companies are, that's, that's really our conversations revolve around the ethics of tech. And so we try to cover like tech news on a weekly basis and then talk about the ethical um, situation that a lot of these companies are getting into for better or worse. And right now it's, it's not great, so. Yeah, so that, that's a great question of like, should the pitch deck have more information or, or be maybe more visually appealing? I think the answer is both. So when you're presenting a presentation and you've got the screen behind you and you've got your slides, the slide should help add context to what you're saying. It shouldn't say it for you. Like, you know, we always talk about reducing that wall of text from the slide. Um, but what I think you should do is both. So you should have the presented version that's maybe imagery, um, limited amounts of text. Maybe it's some product demos. Um, but you could also have the PDF version that's going to be your leave behind or a pre-read that has that extra content on the page. Um, it rarely happens because usually people don't think about the slides until like the week before. And so there's rarely time to make two separate decks. Um, but in an ideal world, that's what you do is have two versions. Uh, one that can be sort of standalone and has the context needed, and one that just helps you tell your story and um, really just give you confidence while you're talking. Yeah, I mean, the best thing a designer can do is talk to your customers. Um, I, I know it's not always the easiest thing to do, but that's maybe where you should like focus the most amount of your efforts. Um, it's way more important to try and get one of your customers on a phone call than it is to like spend three more hours on your prototype. Um, I think if you can really like find the needs that they have and help understand the situations that they're in, um, because as much as people want to design for themselves, you're really designing for someone that's very different from you. Um, so that's, I mean, the most important thing is just trying to talk to them. Uh, and that's where those skills that we talked about earlier of like people skills and trying to, to have those conversations come in real handy. Yeah, so the process comes, usually they are already like pretty far into the process because it's like deck design is not top of mind for almost anybody, but people like myself that are doing the deck design. So it's usually like we've got slides put together. They've usually come from every member of our founding team. You know, a lot of the companies that I work with are very small. They're anywhere from three to 40 people. Um, and usually when you're a company of that size, there's a pretty open amount of communication across all of those people. Because you know we're in a room of probably more than 40 people and it's very easy for all of us to engage. So when you're a company that size, there's lots of that cross collaboration, especially when you're trying to raise funding, especially if it's your first round of funding. And so slides are coming from literally everybody in the company. And so there's um, this element of uh, like chaos and a lack of consistency. And so usually I get brought in, uh, maybe their pitch is in a week or two weeks. Um, and then I try and help them tell that story, like I was saying, is really like focus on like what's the message they're trying to get across. And can we have repetition? Can we add context to it? And then simplifying those slides and bringing some consistency and order to them. Um, and then sort of putting it through a filter of, like I said, uh, I've tried to have a pretty good understanding of what VCs are looking for. So trying to give them all the advice that I've learned of like, you know, this is really helpful slide, but maybe putting it in your appendix for if you get asked the question at 
one of the 12 VC firms are really only interested in that, right? So like some VCs are really interested in like long-term metric projections and some aren't. Some want to know that you've got like product market fit and some customer testimonials. And so trying to figure out like this is important, but maybe it's not the thing that you present to every single VC. So I'm actively interested in this right now. Uh, his question was about turning my business into like a scalable version. Um, I think things like the Figma API um, are really interesting to me of being able to generate designed visuals from code. Um, I think stuff like that is really engaging to me using like Slide.js and, and other things to generate slides um, where I could have maybe like a form or some sort of input for I can ask questions because, you know, I, I know a lot of what VCs are looking for and say, you know, here, give me your quarterly revenue numbers and you put them in and anybody in the company could do this. A lot of times it's the COO or the CFO that's working on the pitch deck. So it's someone that's not going to start putting graphs together on slides. They've got like a spreadsheet. And so building some sort of tool for people to put their information in and then generate visuals from it and getting it to a place where it is that 90% that I was saying is consistent across most pitch decks. Um, and then that extra 10% is maybe where the like uh, customized service that I work on could come into play. Yeah, so um, when I was at Figma, um, they already had the, uh, the code pane, so you can see the code if you click on an element. Um, you can right click and copy like CSS or SVG from like an icon. Um, and then while I was there, they released the export API or the um, read API. So it's taking finished designs and going out. Um, I think a lot of teams like Airbnb and Uber are using those to build internal things that are really helpful. Uh, Airbnb, for example, built a linter for their design. So uh, a linter is usually something from the code world where you can check your code against you know, a known element for maybe errors or mistakes. Uh, this was the same for design, so they could take an app screen and drop the Figma URL and it would say, you know, this headline violates our design system. It's the wrong typeface or the type size. Um, so that's really interesting. I know Figma is working on the sort of right API to go the direction that I want to go in of like taking text and making it visual. Um, and I know they're working on some other really exciting stuff to put code directly on elements. So. I know the team at Figma is working on stuff like that. And so I think over the next couple of years, it'll be really exciting to see what they do. Um, I also think products like Framer are doing really interesting things with code. Um, I didn't really know anything about code until maybe two years ago, how to like do any HTML or CSS or JavaScript myself. Um, and I think it's really interesting to see a lot of the design tools move in that direction. So a lot of designers are moving in that direction of knowing both, um, which I think is just, it's like an interesting time for our industry um, where you don't necessarily have to be able to code something front to back, but having some knowledge of it is really helpful. And now that it's being built into tools, I think we're going to see that accelerate a lot for designers. How to hire a designer. Um, so when I was at Square, I did a lot of hiring. Um, not a lot. I mean, I did some hiring. Um, I think the number one thing I look at is portfolio. Um, uh, I rarely opened like CVs and cover letters. Um, 
Not to say that I didn't eventually get there once you get down to like your final few candidates, but I, for design specifically, it's really not the important part. It's the portfolio and then the in-person portfolio presentation. Um, and that's how I think designers get hired. Some companies do that take-home design exercise. Um, I don't subscribe to that. I think that it's a waste of time. Um, I don't think you can really tell from one of those how good of a designer is because that's not how people design. It's just like whiteboarding for engineering interviewing. It's not really indicative of what their job is. It's very unrelated because when you're coding something, you're probably like going to Google how to do something. You're going to go to Stack Overflow. You're going to reference something you made already that does that thing um, a lot more than you're going to like pull it out of your head and write it on a whiteboard. And I feel the same thing about design challenges. I think um, some of the design challenges I've seen that have been interesting is in person, in the room, like, how would you think about solving this problem? Um, but when you get to that phase, it's just like a normal interview. You don't necessarily have to even have a computer there to figure out how someone's thinking about solving problems. Um, and at the end of the day, that's like, what design is and what development is, it's like problem solving, right? So like, I think at its root level, it's, that's not like an all-encompassing definition, but it covers a lot of the ground for both sort of disciplines is like problem solving. And so you really just want to like gauge how someone thinks about solving problems, not necessarily getting there in an interview or a take-home test. Um, so it's like, for me, it's portfolio and then like how they think about solving problems and then how um, they can diversify your team. So if you're hiring someone that's work looks just like yours, you're just going to get more of the same work. But if you are hiring somebody that has a completely different thought process and a different background, like that's how you advance the whole team. Uh, and that's how you learn and that's how other people learn. Um, I think one of the best pieces of advice I got for hiring was like hire someone that's way better than you because like, you're going to learn from them, and they're going to learn from you. And um, so yeah, I think like not looking for work that looks like the work that you do or the work that your company puts out is also like a really great way to up-level everybody on the team and all the work that comes out. Networking tips. Yeah, um, it, I'm introverted at like base. Like after this, I'll probably like go to a hotel room and like not talk to anybody. So I, I think it's really hard to network. I think it's a skill to learn, just like interviewing is a skill to learn. Um, and so um, one of the things I recommend is like, you got to try it and do it a bunch of times to get better at it. Uh, but if you're like myself and you're pretty introverted, what you can do is like drag your very social extroverted friend to a meetup with you and watch how they interact with other people. Um, even if they're not like if maybe it's a design meetup and you've got a friend that's like an accountant but they're like really good at talking to random people at parties like take them with you and ha have them help um, <laughs> because it's just something you have to like learn over time and get better at and and sharpen that skill so uh, that's sort of what I do is I like see how other people that are good at networking do what they do and just try and like copy them for a while <laughs> until you start getting the hang of it. Um, I also think, like, at root level, everybody just wants to be asked questions about themselves. Like, everybody just wants to talk about themselves. So ask people about themselves and help break the ice that way. And you go a long way.
That's a great question. Am I freelance for good? Probably. Um, I really liked working for companies, but um, now that I've gotten to a place where I've got a consistent stream of clients and feel maybe confident that I'm not going to like run out of money on a weekly basis, I think once you get like a little bit of stability in freelancing, it can be something that is lower stress than working in an office. I also like the flexibility of hours and how much time I work and some weeks I don't have any client work and so it's like, oh, all of a sudden I have a week of like, okay, maybe I'm going to write some articles or I'm going to take a holiday, stuff like that. Um, so now that I have this sort of like a uh, change in structure, I'm not sure I would jump back to a company unless it was a really amazing opportunity that aligned with sort of my morals and ethics and was building a product that I really believed in. I, I mean, I started learning how to code and think it's an amazing tool and know that I'm not very good at it yet. I don't know like if I will spend the next year like investing in that specific skill, but I do I am excited about that. I personally want to invest more in like drawing and illustrating because I think it's um, I wouldn't say it's like more rare, but I think it's a rare talent and something that I struggle with and I'm not very good at. So that's like where I'm really excited at like focusing on is like trying to be better at that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm like pretty excited for a lot of these giant tech companies to get what's coming to them. And so I'm excited that, uh, for example, like the move from people to like starting their own blogs again, I think is like we're at a really exciting time where people not just designers and engineers, but like everybody is like going back to like, I'm going to build a personal website. Um, be that with tools like WordPress or, I mean, like LiveJournal used to be the place that people would go and blog. But I, I think we're like going to come back to a place where more people are, are playing around with code and there's going to be more tools and services like Glitch, for example, that make it easier for people to like break into our industry and, and be able to do it. Um, I think that's sort of like the dream of like, the internet is everyone's able to access it in a democratized way. So I'm excited for that to happen and more people like you, this group of people, to like build smaller products that are exciting and take people away from like Facebook. Thanks for listening to Lewagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button.